Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dynasty Movement. This is User Begrudgingly Awake, and today we have a very special guest on, and that is Arif Hassan, and he is a beat writer for the Minnesota Vikings. I'm especially honored to host him today because I am also a Vikings fan, and I'm looking forward to some time asking some questions from the users and also commiserating about what it's like to be a Vikings fan. So welcome, Arif, to the Dynasty Movement. And yeah, thanks for bringing me on. Absolutely. So I'm going to start off with, with a few uh, general questions. So a lot of the guys are really interested in the life and times of a beat reporter in general. So the first question we're going to start off with is from Alb, our resident Australian. And he's wondering, what is your favorite part about your job of being a beat writer? Uh, what's the, sorry, I was, I, was, I was retweeting the thing. So what's the most challenging part or what's the most exciting part? Uh, he just said favorite. So take it favorite. You Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so honestly, um, I thought, you know, kind of, you know, when I was aspiring to do this career way back, I thought, you know, the most exciting thing uh, would be talking to the players and being able to talk to the coaches. Um, but that's like, that's actually not it, um, partially because you kind of get desensitized to it. And so, you know, that's just like a, a thing that, that you know, you, you take for granted after a while, but also because they like kind of clam up and they don't want to really interact with you as like, a fan they want to interact with you as like a uh, as a reporter and and they're always kind of careful and i think and you know fair right um they're always kind of careful and so you don't really get a, a sense of you know who they are until you develop like a long-term relationship with them um so for me honestly i think it's the travel that i love i mean like i love watching football that's the whole reason i got into it and i watch like just sick amounts of football just absolutely poisonous amounts and i love that right um and so that's great that that's part of my job but I think the thing that always kind of sticks out to me, the thing that kind of recenters myself in terms of like, you know, how happy I am that I have this job is whenever I get to travel and I go to another place, even it doesn't even have to be a new place. Like I just haven't been in New Orleans a ton. So when I go to New Orleans to cover a game, I usually go a day or two early and I and I do something kind of unique to that city. So that that might be my favorite, even though like you think like obviously it's like, you know, I get to watch football and say that that's my job. That's great. But I think my favorite might be the traveling. That's absolutely fair. And I saw on your interest that you were especially interested in travel. So that makes sense that it's something about the job that you really love, which is uh, funny because I know a lot of people, you know, they get a job that involves a lot of traveling and it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, no. Um, and, and I think if it, if my travel schedule was like a little bit more hectic, like I travel on average during the season every other week, right? Um, but if I had to travel every couple of days, like a lot of people who do have to travel for business, um, I, I think I'd get tired of it. But like airports don't really bother me unless there's not really an outlet. And I've just started carrying a power strip with me so I can be kind of the hero and I can just show up and be like, hey, I know you're occupying that outlet. But what if like eight of us occupied the same? Outlet? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, airports don't really bother me. Um, I fall asleep super easy on airplanes. Uh, so uh, the travel portion doesn't bother me a ton. Every so often I have to like get my crazy tense muscles worked out because sitting in those seats is not great. But, um, and I don't like exercise, so I'm just in bad shape. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, that, that part, you know, kind of sucks. But if I had to travel every couple of days or something, or if I couldn't be at home for a majority of the time for my job, that would, that would probably turn into a negative. But the amount of travel that I get right now is like perfect for it. 
Yeah, it's nice to think about. You got eight weeks a year where they're off somewhere else, so that's when you get to see those cities. So one thread I want to pull out a little bit that wasn't actually in the questions here, but uh, you mentioned how the players uh, kind of clam up until you form that relationship with them uh, over time. But is there so is there do rookies tend to come in with clammed up, or in general are they kind of open until people train them up to say, hey, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. be that... careful on what to say. Yeah, that that depends on whether or not they're from Alabama. I think <laughs> uh, the Alabama players are absolutely professionally media trained, so you don't really get a ton out of them. But um, uh, I, rookies tend to just kind of be who they are, which by, by which I mean, like if it's a uh, a fairly charismatic, gregarious rookie that loves talking, that's who they'll be. But if it's somebody that that is already like fairly introverted, like Harrison Smith as a rookie is is actually was actually more closed up than he is now. Um, or, or Trey Waynes, for example, um, was just not a huge talker unless he really got to know somebody. Um, that's, that's who they'll be. Um, but the, the people that are more talkative do tend to, uh, after some time in the NFL, um, especially I think on the Vikings, but you know, that could just be my perspective bias, um, tend to kind of, uh, close down on that a little bit. Um, now if you've got a little bit of cachet, which, you know, say Justin Jefferson, for example, um, it would be kind of harder for, you know, the Vikings to kind of just tell them to, to dial back or whatever. Um, but uh, for the most part, yeah, rookies are kind of who they are. And if they tend to be talkative um, just as people, that's who they are as rookies. And then over time, um, it, it just kind of closes down a little bit, which can get frustrating because you're used to, uh, you know, a certain level of um, not access, but a certain level of candor. And then you don't get that, you know, like eight games into a season or something like that, even if they've had a good game or something, you want to talk about it. It makes sense. I get that media training there. So we had a question here from Electronics, uh, or as I always say in my head, Electro Nick, because that's the way his username looks. And his question is a little bit of a two-parter. And first one is, which Vikings year did you have the most fun as a beat reporter? And the second part is, how about the lease? And according to him, he thinks he has a good guess in the second one. Um, so uh, what's the second one? Uh, the least favorite season. Oh, the like least reporter. favorite. Um, ac- so actually, as a as a beat reporter, you tend to kind of remove yourself from like, you know, cheering for the team or whatever. Uh, and so, um, it's actually the boring not it, the the seasons that are catastrophes are actually easier and better to cover, right? Which is not to say I'm cheering for catastrophes. It's just like at, you know, retrospectively, it's just easier to cover that season. Um, because you can talk about, you know, six different ways it went wrong, but like an average season. So, you know, the past, you know, three odd numbered years or whatever, uh, or even numbered years, um, those, those suck to cover if they're like seven and nine or eight and eight or whatever. Um, it's just, it's just a boring team because they just have to get a little bit better and you can't really write how they have to get a little bit better, like every single week. And they don't tend to have as many stars that you can write about. So obviously the Vikings are a little bit different because, you know, they've got Smith and Kendricks and uh, Hunter now, obviously. And you always can talk about the quarterback and, you know, Thielen and Diggs for a while and Jefferson now. They've always got someone to talk about. But um, for the most part, if it's a boring season, it's it's tough to cover. So, for example, 2017, I think, is probably the the year that everyone's thinking about as, as a great one to cover. And that's probably my favorite one to cover. Um, I think that had I been kind of instead of like a an on again off again blogger in 2009, um, and I was instead a, a writer that season, that would have been my favorite um, because you know you're talking about candor. You know, Favre was great on the mic, right? So he would have been fun to cover, and then also you get Jared Allen and stuff like that. But 
2017 was a was a really fun one to cover. So I think um, if that was your guess, you probably could have nailed that. Um, but least favorite, um, they kind of tend to slip away. Uh, this year uh, was a little bit easier to cover than than some of the other average seasons because it was such a young team. There were a lot of things that you could talk about. Um, but I'd say probably yeah, 2018 was like pretty boring, I guess. I mean, there was the, you know, Kirk arrived, so you could talk about the fact that, you know, there's a different quarterback, you could talk about it. But like, yeah, maybe 2018, like 2016 was like dynamic, right? Because um, for like bad reasons, right? Because, you know, Bridgewater gets hurt right before mm-hmm. the season starts. They trade for a quarterback and, the, you know, like three different quarterback expectations to start that year. Um, so there is something to talk about there. But I think um, 2018 might have been kind of the least favorite one to cover. It makes sense. Kirk Cousins is definitely the guy. I mean, as much as people like to complain about him not being a superstar, he takes a little bit of the, you know, the air out of we need we need some sort of quarterback because he's been a steady guy for us for quite a while. And yeah, which is pretty unusual for the Vikings, right? The the last oh. um, multiple year fourteen plus game starter was like Dante Culpepper. Yeah, and of course, as with all things Vikings, it went well until everything blew up and his knee fell apart. Yeah, yeah, it went well until it catastrophically didn't, yeah. <laughs> so Bryce was wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the Norse Code podcast and why we should give it a listen. Uh, yeah, I don't know why people listen to it, honestly. I don't know if I can sell it, but uh, people do listen to it, so, <laughs> so there's something there. Um, so that one is uh, a little less uh, professional just in terms of, of the way we approach it because uh, our producer, James, who's also the co-host now, um, you know, he he runs it and I just kind of respond. And, you know, he's he's like a, a fan that's very frustrated with the team. Uh, and so that's kind of the perspective. He approaches it when he when he kind of runs the show. Um, and by interviews on the show, you know, when when we're like playing the Eagles or we're playing, you know, the Packers or whatever, my interviews are, are really with my friends who cover the team. And so I, I feel like, you know, from my I feel like they've got a fair amount of chemistry. Uh, and so um you know, I usually get Michael Kist on for the Eagles, and we've got kind of this, like, adversarial relationship, or Justice Mosqueda, who's just this insane character. Um, and so that's pretty fun. Uh, and so the first half of the show is always dedicated to, you know, Vikings-related stuff, sometimes NFL news. Then the second half of the show is, like, this really long mailbag. People always come in with these, like, mailbag questions that sometimes take a long time to answer, and half of those mailbag questions have nothing to do with football at all. So I'll talk about, you know, food, because I'm I'm super into, you know, cooking and, and eating food. Um, or we'll talk about it. They'll ask me about stuff that they know I don't have any expertise in, uh, the bits. And so like, I have to pretend to be an expert on like beekeeping or whatever. And so, uh, that's, that's just what the show is sometimes. (laughs) And so the second half of the show is just kind of weird and out there. And then, you know, sometimes we'll do live shows. That's pretty fun. Um, you know, we'll travel out to Seattle, do a live show there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. People, people really do seem to like it uh, a lot. Uh, I just, um, I just kind of shoot the shit on the on the show so uh if if that's something that people are super interested in hearing yeah totally download it and listen to it download it eight times whatever get it across all of these the streaming platforms so they get extra, extra downloads going yeah, yeah yeah spotify stitcher uh you know podcast addict whatever right itunes and one additional question here that we had from our australian alb he asked uh he's already sold as someone who subscribes the athletic but do you can you sell people on why that's a great uh, thing to subscribe to? Yeah, for sure. I think um, so. Before I, well, I was writing for the Athletic, I thought it had uh, the best collection of sports writers, um, at least for football anyway, um, and and certainly for the NHL, uh, had uh, had the best collection of sports writers on the planet. 
um, for within those respective beats. And now, of course, that I'm on it, you know, that that's a little bit less true. But uh, I, I think that uh, they do a, a really excellent job of uh, of giving the writers freedom to write about stuff that they find compelling. Uh, and and some of the feature pieces are just insanely phenomenal writing. Um, you know, the like Boardman gets paid, uh, Kawhi Leonard. That, I mean, that came from an athletic story from Jason Jenks. Really great stuff. Um, you know, we, we sent a couple of people, obviously, to cover the Super Bowl down in Atlanta when that was happening. And uh, one of the beat reporters just decided to write about Magic City, which it turned out to be an excellent story, um, which, uh, you know, it was, it was incredible. It kind of shocked me that that turned out to be, you know, a, such a highlight story. Uh, you know, Jordan Rodriguez just got recognized by the Pro Football Writers Association um, uh, with the Therese Paler Emerging Writer Award, and she absolutely deserves it. She killed it covering the Rams this year. This is the first year covering the Rams, and, you know, it's it's a tough year for it to be the first year because you don't get access. And she wrote all kinds of great stories about the Rams process in terms of, like, how they uh, integrate, you know, scouting and analytics into the draft process, how they found the, the, the rookie safety that did so well last year. Um, and, uh, and, you know, she produced a, a couple of really knockout stories like that. So um, there are a bunch of really great individual stories, features that you get through The Athletic that I think are, are, are well worth it alone. And then on top of that, you also get all of the beat writer stuff from people who have been doing, I think, a really excellent job covering the team. And so their perspective that they provide in terms of their beat writing um, is really great in terms of just providing the context you need. Um, because it's a subscription site, you know, there's, a, you know, not really a need for like clickbait and stuff like that. You know, you don't need to like hook people in and and the thing about clickbait is you know the the reason people hate it is because you click it and you're kind of disappointed right like the like the story is not that deep or it's just kind of a gotcha or whatever but we can't do that right because if people are disappointed with what you know we lured them in with then they just don't subscribe and then we don't make money because there's no ads on the site so um, I, I tend to think that produces really high quality writing saving the world from clickbait is a noble pursuit and i really appreciate that I mean, that's the that's the hope, right? You know, if if only um, you know, saved you a click was like a uh, was a bot that could that could go for every news story, man. Absolutely. So, we got a few player specific questions here, and I'm gonna start off with some of the non Vikings questions because we can probably spend forever on Viking specific things. But I'm gonna start off with uh, Al has another question. He's loading us up today. Other than Jamar Chase, because Al thinks he's, he's a grown ass man. Who are your favorite rookie receivers for this year? He asked oh, for two, but if you got one or three, whatever works for you. Okay, that that one's interesting because I've got like my favorite ones to watch, which are like Rondale Moore, Elijah Moore, uh, and then there's the ones that I think have maybe kind of the best chance of of success. Because I I don't really I need to be kind of more sold on Rondale Moore. Like from an analytics perspective, his breakout age obviously is just really excellent. He's a, an insane athlete, but it's just so hard to find like really successful five, seven receivers. Um, so uh, if I'm taking a look at kind of the guys that I think will have um, kind of a really great job in terms of succeeding, again, aside from, you know, someone like Jamar Chase, um, I don't know. I, I, I like Terrace Marshall. I don't like his, like obviously a situation from a production standpoint in Carolina for like a couple of reasons, the depth chart and the quarterback, but um, yeah, I like him. I like Josh Palmer a lot. Um, Elijah Moore, I actually, I do like from a, a long-term success standpoint. Um, and then guys that I'm just kind of intrigued by that I think could outperform the draft slot, you know, include, uh, I mean, these guys I think were drafted back-to-back. Nico -back. Um, Collins and Anthony Schwartz are pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's an interesting class because it's like there were a bunch of slot receivers in the class. And and for whatever reason, I just feel like they're they're much harder to project generally. 
Uh, and so it's it's tough to kind of figure out, you know, what you do with a player like Ronda Moore, like Kadarius Toney. Um, you know, Devonta Smith is is one of the most interesting receivers in the class because um, he's a, a, you know, a really great route runner, but he's got, you know, this, this weird physical profile and stuff like that. And I'm really excited to see how that kind of turns out. Um, but in terms of like guys that I feel like are are just like slated to succeed, I don't know. This one's a, a tough one to project for me anyway. Yeah, I've definitely seen it as a really interesting class myself. I think the the way that I've been thinking of it is it's almost like this class is like creating uh, caricatures of profiles of people who have a great this, but but awful something else. And everyone has some something glaring that you look at other than, I guess, Jamar Chase, in my mind, that you look at and just say, all right, it's, everything's awesome, except for this guy happens to be five foot seven. This guy is literally 149 <laughs> yeah. pounds. Right. And and you're, you're looking at every single person and you're seeing, all right, I like something about them because of whether it's analytics or something I like on film. And then there's this other thing that just leaves this taste in your mouth that you can never be sure on. Yeah, no, it's nuts. Like, um, like, like, and, and Jamar Chase is kind of the only one, but then again, you know, he didn't really play, right? <laughs> like, yeah, he opted know, out so... of a full year. And yeah. so we have one year of sample and what if he, you know, what if he didn't do well last year? Would anyone care about him? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really, I mean, obviously this applied to, the whole draft because there were a lot of really notable opt-outs, but it, I think for the wide receiver class in particular, you know, it's it's interesting that there's a class that is considered to be, and I think fair, fairly so, considered to be so strong, but has so many question marks over a lot of the individual players, you know, for for whatever reason, right? Um, you know, there's just not a lot of like kind of, you know, this guy kind of, you know, should project well. Like Rashad Bateman is a really good example of a guy that should project reasonably well, like in terms of what his draft slot was. You know, obviously the situation's not great for production purposes, but you know, from a from a draft perspective, you know, he's maybe one of the cleaner ones, but he's not as exciting as like a Kadarius Tony. He's not as exciting as like a Rondale Moore. Um, so yeah, I mean there's just so many and like Jalen Waddle, I mean that's an interesting one. Like he had a really young breakout age and then um, you know, because he's at Alabama, you know, it's tough for him to to really prove that that he's gonna get a ton of yards. So if you're an analytics guy, it's kind of, you know, how do you do that with Jalen Waddle? Um he's a guy that I think you can be a little bit more confident in than like Henry Ruggs, but like I don't know. It's it yeah, the the wide receiver class was just like fascinating. Yeah, I feel like Almost all of them have just this huge range of outcomes where they could be basically boss for that, and we'd all say, "Yeah, we saw it coming." Or, "Hey, this guy had a really good career, and there's a lot of good reasons why." It's interesting class. Yeah. Uh, what one per one player that kind of has had an interesting career so far that Peja wanted to ask about is thoughts on Logan Thomas this year with all the changes that the Washington offense has gone through. Oh geez, um, I mean, I like out of Logan left field Thomas. there. Yeah, I like Logan Thomas. I think uh, there's not as many, you know, convert to tight end that you know actually work out, and and he's a really great example of that. But yeah, man. Um, well, first, I don't think Sam, uh, Sammy Reyes or Samus Reyes. I don't actually know how to pronounce his name. Is any reasonable threat to to Logan Thomas now or in the future? I, I think that um, that that's a little bit of overhype. But um, they 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 added so many tight ends. They kind of feel like maybe they want to do something with that. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I just think that, that given the receiving talent that they have invested in, I mean, I think that what they drafted a third round guy, the North Carolina guy, Diami Brown, I think. Um, they added Curtis Samuel. They have Terry McLaurin, obviously, who I think continues to be underrated. 
Um, I am holding out hope for uh, Antonio Gandy-Golden to to do pretty well um, because I liked what I saw when I was scouting him. Um, they, they have some. It's it's tough, I think, to to see kind of um, a ton available for Logan Thomas, um, especially because like their their top two backs are receiving threats as well, uh, and so that's just like, I mean, McLaurin himself is just eating so much of the share that um, Thomas is probably going to do pretty fine in terms of what they're asking him to do. But in terms of like, if you were taking, you know, dart throws on tight ends pretty late in a draft or something like that, uh, Thomas is probably not kind of my first approach there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one name you missed there that I'm still holding a hope on based on my prior uh, uh, pre-draft assessment was Kelvin Harmon in terms of a yeah. bigger body guy who can make the contested <laughs> catches. But, oh, the fall there, um, watching day one of the draft, then day two, and then into day three was, yeah, it I just hurt that. my heart. And he drafted in the sixth, right? Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, oh. and that was the time when I was like, all right, I'm not going to even like really start ranking wide receivers or anyone else until after the draft because clearly I don't know what I'm doing. You got a lot of people in draft Twitter, right? There were a lot of people that were really, really high on uh... – on on Kelvin Harmon, I, I saw somebody put him like wide receiver one even, um, which yeah, I mean in that class that year. Yeah, yeah, uh, just the giant guys that couldn't turn. Uh, which I mean, after DK Metcalf, you know who knows, right? But uh, yeah, I just uh, I wasn't as high on him as a lot of other people were, but I just think that uh, that I mean that I I wouldn't feel bad for missing on him because so many people and and a lot of people whose opinions I respect were really high on him as well is really amazing so uh, we got one for that's inside the division here as thoughts on justin fields and in addition do you think the vikings were really trying to move up to get him i do um for two reasons one i trust courtney cronin's reporting i think she's a really good reporter um with espn and she was the first one to break it and then multiple other reports from other fairly reputable reporters have confirmed that uh justin fields was a target so i think that that's the case and, uh, and and I think the reporting is pretty good. But the second reason, um, the I mean, obviously the Panthers released that video that included the the Vikings trade, um, and uh, I I uh, I do believe that they would trade up for Rashawn Slater. I'm, I'm confident that they would be comfortable doing that, and that was one of their um, two targets. But I I do think that you know that's the kind of move that you make for a quarterback like Justin Fields. So I do think the Vikings were trying to get Justin Fields. But it is weird because teams that trade up for a quarterback overpay, typically. You know, if you take a look at whichever chart you want to look at, the Rich Hill chart, the Jimmy Johnson chart, the five or so approximate value charts, PFF war, whatever. Any team that's trading up into the top 10 for a quarterback is overpaying. Uh, and the Vikings that offer, they clearly weren't. Um, and so there is like a, a good intuitive reason to think that maybe they weren't that in on Justin Fields, because if they wanted to draft a quarterback in the top 10, you'd think they'd pay more than like, um, you know, obviously one of the, the, the first that they had and a third and, and, uh, and another third, I think was the, maybe a fourth. Um, and they didn't want to trade a future first, you know, that was like part of the, they just refused to trade a future first. Um, so you think, but I, I I do think that you know the reporting on uh, on Justin Fields and uh, you know the fact that they were willing to trade up to eight. I think that's a good indication that they were willing to trade up for him. As for what I think of him, he was like I, to me, he was quarterback too. I think he's a really excellent quarterback. Um, you know, I think that the processing speed stuff, like I think that's genuinely a concern. 
But, you know, I think that his accuracy, arm strength, his ability to generally read the field, I think that all of that is all there. Um, and and I think that, you know, his ability to, you know, work under pressure, his athleticism, which is not a crutch for him or anything like that, all of that, I think, puts him above someone like, uh, you know, Zach Wilson, who has, you know, ridiculous arm strength and can throw on the run, um, is not really battle tested in the same way and, and doesn't have the same accuracy. Um, and so I liked I liked Wilson um, until I heard he was going number two, and then I became a hater. Um, but I think that Justin Fields is is genuinely, you know, in a, in a lot of quarterback drafts would be QB one for me. So I mean, he's he's really excellent. Yeah, I was definitely on that train of people who thought he should be in consideration for number two if he wasn't the surefire thing. Uh, keeping in the quarterback room, we got some questions about Kirk Cousins here. Oh no, and. So I guess we'll start off with, with a general one. We'll, we'll narrow it in a little bit after that. Uh, Bryce was wondering, general thoughts on Kirk Cousins? Uh, geez. Uh, <laughs> that's already kind of complicated. Pretty broad there. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a good quarterback. Um, he's just really kind of what does good mean and is it good enough? Um, yeah, I think that it's tough, especially in this quarterback environment, now that there's so many good young quarterbacks like – Josh Allen has muscled his way into the conversation. Lamar Jackson deserves consideration there. Um, it'd be weird not to at least include Diana Hill in the discussion. Um, obviously, Justin Herbert is kind of moving his way into potentially being in that conversation. Um, now, like four years ago, top 10 would have been a much easier case to make for Cousins. Now it's it's so much more difficult um, because of, you know, the emergence of all these guys. Uh I, I think that, you know, statistically, he can be a top 10 quarterback. And the question is kind of, how can a quarterback translate that into wins? Because I don't think it's really true, the garbage time stuff. He's actually a really good, accurate deep ball thrower. All the stuff people say about Kirk Cousins doesn't tend to be true, but that doesn't mean I've bought into him as like an elite guy. He's obviously not elite. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, I think it might be a situational awareness thing. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, when it comes to like two minute drills or managing a clock down several scores, you know, that becomes a problem. He's a very textbook quarterback. He's really great pre-snap. He's okay post-snap. Um, he's got really good accuracy. He's got really great arm strength, which I think kind of goes underrated for him because he feels really safe. So people don't think of him as a as a high arm strength quarterback. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, like if you like, I, I think I said this on a on a podcast like way back in like December or something like that. Where I said, if you were given a list of 32 quarterbacks and you were you were guaranteed that they were the best 32 quarterbacks on the planet, no matter what, right? Um, you know, Kirk Cousins would of course be on that list, and you would probably, after taking a look at that list, put him in the top 16, right? Uh, and so, you know, be, beyond that, you know, how much do you pay for that? Especially because you know some of these guys are on rookie deals, so you can't really compare their contracts to him, um, and you know. All of that, that that becomes the issue. Is he worth like $40.5 million in an expanded cap environment next year? Probably not. Uh, um, is he worth $30 million when the Vikings signed him? Or I guess $27. Um, actually, I think so. And and I think that, you know, the Vikings kind of losing um, a couple of games, a couple of critical games with him at the helm. Some of those are his fault. You know, I think the San Francisco game, you know, he played pretty poorly. But, you know, I think for the most part, them not getting a better seed entering the playoffs, you know, a lot of that has to do with factors outside of his control. So I think he's a good quarterback. It's just, like, tough to hit your wagon to him. They absolutely feel that. I know a lot of people were thought it was crazy with this 100% guaranteed contract that he got and the high, and what seemed like high numbers at the time that looking at quarterback contracts since, it seems pretty reasonable. 
Uh, a follow-up question that we had there was, someone asked, do you think Kirk makes it to the end of his current contract? And if he does, do the Vikings try and extend him, being as we've been through quarterback hell and purgatory before? Are we going to be gun-shy and just say, hey, we got good enough, let's keep with it? Uh, I mean, the the Wilfs have a goal of winning the Super Bowl. They, their goal is not to like be relevant um, as much as it kind of seems like that with the way that they've kind of stuck with Zimmer and Spielman. Uh, and in order for that to be true, you you cannot pigeonhole yourself into like an 85% chance of just being good with only a 2% chance of winning the Super Bowl. You have to take shots that um, maybe increase your chances for failure, but also increase your chances of success and decrease your chances of kind of that weird middle ground, right, to get you out of QB purgatory, which is the decision the Bengals ultimately made with Andy Dalton, which, you know, for the first, you know, kind of section of that, you know, didn't work out for them. But um, eventually, you know, it, it seems like it might. So, uh, yeah, I, that that's that's a that's a really difficult question, because you're more likely if you jettison cousins, you know, let's like set Kellen Mond aside for a second um, or even include him. He's a third round pick. He's probably not you know, going to be a high level starting quarterback and it'd be great if he ends up that way. But, you know, numbers, odds, he's probably not. Right. So if you jettison Kirk Cousins you're probably going to be a worse team. I mean, just statistically, you're just likely going to not have a quarterback as good as him the next two times that you go for a quarterback. But if you give yourself like three shots at that apple, you know, every other year, every every three years or something, at some point, you're probably going to produce a quarterback better than him. You know, if you've got like three first round picks over the course of over the course of nine years at a quarterback. So um, that quarterback that's better than him is probably going to you know, give you a chance at a, at a genuine Super Bowl run. Um, whereas Cousins, you have to really evaluate, not is he good, but can he give you a genuine shot at the Super Bowl? And if you've got a team like that 49ers team that, you know, that eventually lost, but I, that seems to be kind of the team building strategy anyway. If you've got a team like that, or a team like the 2017 Vikings, which of course was the situation they thought they were buying into in 2018 when they signed him, then yeah, that's absolutely a quarterback that you can win a Super Bowl with with that rest of that team with an elite receiving core with at the time they signed him a number one defense um, that um, can play against a variety of schemes. I mean, that was the year that he absolutely dismantled Sean McVay, uh, Mike Zimmer, uh, and, um, and 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 you can just kind of envision how that works, right? You know, we've seen those kinds of quarterbacks, you know, win on on uh, on teams that have had like really good sporting casts or really good coaches or whatever, right? Like the first two Tom Brady Super Bowls, right? You know, I, I think people kind of forget he was a game manager. It wasn't until, you know, like 2004, 2005 that he actually turned into like a really substantial part of the reason that they were winning. Uh, and then, of course, the 2007 season happened and it shifted the narrative on him entirely. But, you know, we've seen Super Bowls or at least Super Bowl participants where, you know, that's the quarterback that they have. And, you know, I think, you know, for example, that, that Cousins is a better quarterback than Garoppolo, and they got all the way to the Super Bowl with a pretty good team. So um, can you? Yeah, I think your odds are pretty low, especially in the current environment where there's so many good quarterbacks. Um, but um, I, I think that you really have to have that conversation about whether or not you are willing to take on the greater risk of failure in order to have um, the greater risk of success or the greater chance of success assuming your definition of success is narrow enough to mean a Super Bowl ring, which for the Wilfs and many fans, it is. That's a, that's a great assessment. I know for me, I'm probably more on the conservative side of just saying, like, I'm happy just making playoffs every year and rolling the dice and seeing what happens. But, you know, when you've really got that eye on the Super Bowl, it makes sense that you'd say, you know, let's take the shots, be aggressive, and maybe see what happens. 
Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, like it. It fall. And it's also, you know, bias here. It'd be more fun to cover a team that takes shots like that. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely would. You know, make a lot more sense to be that aggressive, uh, in some ways. But I, I really do sympathize because again, the last guy to to start. You know, fourteen plus games in multiple seasons was Dante Culpepper, right? Like it's. Uh, it's like terrifying to be at that other end to not know kind of what your what your situation was with the quarterback. They've wasted so many good teams with bad quarterbacks. Um, mm-hmm. Like I I would have to imagine that if you had someone just like a little bit better than Christian Ponder and Joe Webb, right, in Adrian Peterson's super season, right, that you could have made it further than the first round of the playoffs. And, and you know better play calling too, right? Like you know they could have had Joe Webb run the ball a little bit, but. Um, yeah, you have to imagine if they had an average quarterback that season that they, I mean, they'd probably make it pretty far. And so they've wasted a lot of really good teams with genuinely bad quarterbacks. And like I said, you're probably going to get worse before you get better if you move on from Cousins because that's a high bar to clear. Um, it's just, you probably need to clear that bar. And so that's mm. that's the debate. I'm super sympathetic with both sides of that. Man, I tell you, I had almost suppressed the memory of that Joe Webb playoff game from my soul. I'm sorry. So, th- well, I guess here, thank here's you for the, Here's that the back. silver lining of that, is that because of that game, Kaepernick ran for 200, right? Like, they looked at that game and were like, so this is how you beat them, and that's how they did it. Yeah, that was, that was fun to watch. My, my wife's a Packer fan, with me being a Viking fan, and being able to watch that game with her when it was happening, it's, she got a little... A little testy about the little smile that was curling up in my face as Kaepernick was just running all over them. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, like, for Packers fans, that had to be one of the most frustrating oh, yeah. things on the planet. Oh, I, I bet it was. So we, we got one question here, and I think from what you've already said before, I think I, think I know what your answer might be uh, re- related to the quarterback room, and that's from Dagger, and he's wondering if you think Kellen Mond will challenge Kirk at all this year. This year, no. I don't think so. Um, I, I well, first, I mean, they're not even really giving him a chance to do it, at least in minicamp and OTAs. He's taken, um, just snaps here and there on the second and third team. But I think for right now, um, it seems to be shaping up that Browning is going to be their QB2, um, at least for a good chunk of the season. And, um, uh, the way NFL practices work is that there's just not a ton of opportunities for QB3 to prove that he's good enough to take QB2's job, much less take QB1's job. Um, it, like, they just don't have enough time in a day to give QB3 reps because they're trying to win next week. And so the way you do that is you practice with the team you're going to play with, not a team that you might play with, you know, a year from now. So I don't think so this year. Um, certainly would be uh, one of the more exciting storylines uh, story to cover, but I also think it would just be unwise for the Vikings to throw him on out there because I think there's a lot he needs to work on. Feeling if Mondesini's playing the time this year, it's things have gone. Um, it probably yeah, things have gone, yeah. Like either Kirk is playing so horribly that you've got no other choice, which is bad, or Kirk got injured for the first time in his career, um, which is also probably catastrophically bad because now you're forced to play someone, which is not a situation you want to be in. Absolutely. So transitioning from those quarterbacks, we got a few questions specifically about tight ends and. Adam, our local Steelers fan, is wondering, why is Mike Zimmer crushing all the hopes and dreams of Irv Smith owners in fantasy? Oh, I think that doesn't matter at all. I think Mike Zimmer should be applauded for knowing the names of multiple offensive players on the team. (laughs) 
<laughs> I it just uh, first of all, I think that um, Zimmer will always like say some stuff right about about whatever player, uh, and and very often it it kind of just doesn't bear out as the season progresses. I think two really good examples, of course, are Stefan Diggs and Justin Jefferson, neither of whom started that year, right, their rookie year, uh, and by the time the year ended, they they led their teams in in uh, yards per out run since it, you know after starting, uh, and so the Vikings have pretty clearly indicated that if things aren't going well, and, you know, Diggs played because of injury, but if if the guys ahead of them are not playing as well, they'll play those guys. You know, I think that for the most part, we've seen that um, at least among the receiving, uh, the receiving core, that opportunity goes to the, to, to those talented players. Like it, it's un it's not like quarterback practices because um, every, every receiver will take reps with the ones. Um, especially in training camp, but even in practice. And so they'll get to see, you know, those guys play. And that's true of the tight ends as well. Um, so if, uh, you know, Irv Smith deserves to, if you believe in his talent, you know, I, I wouldn't let Zimmer's comments change my valuation of him at all um, as a redraft or as a dynasty asset. Plus, I think that, you know, he's actually referring more to the the plays he's asked to run and from what position, unless um how many catches he expects to see or how many targets he expects to see because conklin is a tight end in the mold of kyle rudolph so they'll ask him to do stuff like kyle rudolph did whereas irv smith is more of a move tight end and so they'll ask him to do stuff that move tight ends do and so i think that's really what he means by you know we won't see him expand his role he might get the ball a lot more and his role could be you know similar in terms of style so i think that's kind of what he meant first of all but second i just don't really care what Zimmer says about how much playing time a, a player is going to get because um, he's motivated to not tell you the truth because he doesn't want to reveal kind of whatever strategic, you know, insights might accidentally be dropped in a presser. Um, but also, you know, he'll change his mind as he gets new information, which is a good thing. Um, but, you know, we've, we've seen that, you know, time and again, where rookies don't start the season or players that are next in line don't, you know, get a huge uh, amount of attention and then suddenly they'll explode. Right. Like Adam Thielen, for example, another really great example of that, you know, not even an undrafted guy, a tryout guy um, and, uh, you know, works his way up and ends up becoming a top receiver. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't care too much about about those comments. All right. So someone who's been around the team enough to get some looks, do you believe in Irv's talent to to go above Zimmer's comments there? Uh, I mean, what's his like? Uh, what's his like dynasty ranking among tight ends? I can tell you if I believe that he's better or worse than that. I'm going to take, take a look uh, at fantasy pros. Let's see what we got here. I don't know it offhand. I can tell you personally, I don't think he's really, I think he's more named than uh, stats, but I think that's in part because the tight end realm, you know, after a certain point, number eight or so is just this morass of people who are all producing like 400 some yards and, and a handful of touchdowns. His dynasty ranking is goosed so much by his age. Wow. Uh, <laughs> because he's 22. Um, and the guy right below him on, on the consensus ranks from fantasy pros is Bobby Tanyan, big Bob. Uh, and he's 27, right? Yeah. No question that Robert Tanya has been more productive the past, like two years. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and John Smith's even below that one doesn't make sense. I would not put John Smith below Herb Smith. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think 10's maybe a little high for him, but I, oh, he, they have a list of this 10, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just the consensus of like a hundred people. Right. So. Uh, so a bunch of people have them functionally listed as 10, but I, um, I would probably put them like 13, 14, right? 
like uh, Evan Ingram has been disappointing long enough that, that you could justify Smith's age being, you know, him being a better dynasty asset. Um, and then after that, it's like Evan Ingram, Logan Thomas, Cole Komet, Tyler Higby. And I think he's like better than that group for sure as an asset. Um, but I, I wouldn't put him ahead of John Smith or Hunter Henry. Um, so probably, probably like 13. So do I believe in his talent? Uh, kind of, uh, you know, the fact that he hasn't, you know, quote unquote broken out yet um, is not insanely concerning from a statistical perspective. You know, PFF did a pretty good study on when players tend to prove, you know, who they are. And for tight ends, that's year three, you know, your George Kittles are fairly rare. Uh, and so I think that, you know, happened with Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller broke out super late. Um, you know, Mark Andrews is a pretty good rookie tight end too. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, I think he's good. I just, I don't think that he's like a top 10 fantasy tight end. I like him, but I, I just, I can't justify that ranking. I know I personally can't see it there either. I'd love to see it, but I don't think it'll get there. Uh, and the user, uh, Janus is elite. Love the name. Uh, ask, should I, or shouldn't I pick up Tyler Conklin for fantasy? Um, I mean, he's an interesting handcuff. I think, I think that, um, you should be, it depends on how deep the league is, right? Um, I think you should be prepared for it, but I don't know if in a standard size, uh, team league that that would be a remarkable idea. Um, you know, the last four or five games where he essentially replaced Kyle Rudolph, you know, his production was pretty good. Um, and you know, for a tight end too, for it, from a team perspective, that was really great to see, uh, from a fantasy perspective, I don't think he was super productive. Um, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't, um. Uh, I wouldn't do that unless I was in a pretty deep league or a league that I had like taxi squads and stuff like that, which I am it with that's actually I am in one of those leagues and that's the reason I'm invisible in the Discord server right now. Um because they're bothering me to do like power rankings and I just don't want to do it. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I guess I've never seen a situation where handcuffing tight ends is an actual viable strategy, so uh, Oh yeah, I think it, normally it seems it's like a super dumb. Shot. But I think I think like if you've got like a a Goddard Earth situation, obviously. Well, they, they'll both be drafted either way, um, you know, if, you know, two years ago or whatever, right? But, like, I think that in this situation, in a deep enough league, that kind of makes sense. But I think, yeah, for the most part, that's pretty dumb. I remember because I had Ian Thomas handcuffed to Greg Olson. And so when Greg Olson went down, Ian Thomas didn't do anything. I mean, he looked good for a few games, but that was about it. Yeah. Not good yeah, enough people for people hold out hope for a while. Yeah. So... Moving over to the offensive line, the first question we got from Ghost of June, one of our scummy resident Packer fans, he's wondering, is Christian Derisaw an answer for our woes? <laughs> if he can play. Um, no, I mean, right, uh, right now he's uh, rotating on the second team with Ole Udo, uh, in part because he's still recovering from the offseason surgery that he had. But um, yeah, at some point, um, you know, I, I think he's going he's gonna to start over Rashad Hill by the beginning of the season. And if not... It's going to be the Brian O'Neill path, who also took over for Rashad Hill after Rashad Hill technically started the season. <laughs> um, which, man, that would be tough if you're him. Uh, but I don't know. He he resounded the Vikings. I think he kind of should have seen what was coming. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'll say yeah. I think the first couple of of games that I watched of Christian Derrissaw, I was like super out on him, um, and I, I just happened to watch probably the worst games for him. Uh, and then as I as I watched more games and games against like really good competition too, um, you know I, I I think I ended up liking it more. I just put on the Miami game first because everyone knows that Miami had a really great edge rusher class, 
um, like, you know, three of those edge rushers got drafted, right? And so I wanted mm-hmm. to see that. And uh, and that was a very whatever game to me. But, you know, I watched him against Pitt. I watched him against um, a couple of these other ACC teams, Clemson even, um, where he was all right. So uh, I, I liked what I saw eventually, but it took me a bit. And the ordering the games that I watched, it made me hesitant. But I think so. I think that there's a decent chance that he's better than Riley Reef, which would obviously be great because Reef was actually really good last year. Um, it was just kind of a, a numbers game in terms of not being able to retain him. Um, but, you know, he was... Bradley Reef was not a problem last year. It was like everybody on the interior was the problem. Uh, and Brian O'Neill wasn't even all that good relative to how Brian O'Neill has played over the past three years. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if he's the answer to the woes because there weren't that many woes at left tackle, but I think he'll be good. Absolutely. And do you think that there are any uh, veteran offensive line players that might be improved and deserve a shout-out? That's also from June. He likes his big guys. An offensive player that's improved that deserves a chance to play? Specifically on the O-line. Someone who you think is yeah. maybe maybe because we all think Vikings O-line, they basically don't exist. Someone that you think, you know, I, th- I think he's at least well, worth the, mentioning as, as someone. The issue is, like, if it's a tackle, right, where where would they get that chance? They wouldn't, right? Because you're not going to replace mm-hmm. Brown O'Neill. And, you know, Darisaw is kind of the next in line. And to me, that player is probably Oli Udo, who I think is, has improved pretty substantially and is a really legitimate swing tackle and might even have starting capability. That'd be really cool to see. I don't know that there's anyone on the interior that is uh, that. That is that. And you expect Wyatt Davis to start. And to be really, does someone take over for Garrett Bradbury? I don't think there's anyone at center that's a really good you know, candidate for that, especially because the Vikings always play, you know, will they, won't they with uh, Brett Jones. Um, but, you know, at right guard, we just kind of expect, um, or I guess at left guard, it's going to be Ezra Cleveland. So is somebody going to take over left guard over, you know, the second round pick from, from last year. And, uh, they're, they're not going to get an opportunity. I think that, uh, Cleveland's going to get every chance in the world to keep that job. Um, and left side is probably going to be a little bit better for him than right side. I don't know. Um, I don't think that he's a guard, but I also don't think that like Dakota Dozier or Drew Samia can effectively challenge him. I think that Kyle Hinton has had enough time on the squad to, you know, be an effective, you know, guard replacement yet. So the guy I believe in most is like a kind of a uh, maybe he deserves a shot as a tackle and there's no spot for a tackle right now. Yeah, unless you're going to play someone terribly out of position and probably make him look awful for a while. Oh, you mean like Ezra Cleveland? <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. So switching gears within the team, uh, I, I, our our running back pick got a lot of people interested uh, and you might have to help me out with the pronunciation here. I, I know I read it once, but I'm going to butcher it now, but I believe it is Kune Ungangwe. Uh, Kene Wangu. Kene Wangu. For some reason, the, the thing that I read said, said that the first E in his first name was an U. So they didn't know either. Um, I mean, the pronunciation guy I got from the Vikings, which I don't know if they got it from him or from uh, Iowa state or whatever. Um, it says that. So, well, that's what I got. I haven't actually talked to him yet, so I don't know. But um, yeah, that guy, uh, he's interesting. Um, I don't expect him to see the field soon, and I think they think of him as a Mike Boone guy with more return potential, um, which, I mean, he was a really excellent returner. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if if Cook goes down, it, there's a decent chance it's a committee between him and Madison, who obviously would take you know a primary role in that situation. But uh, you know they might just keep Amir Abdullah 
this year as well and just carry four running backs again. Uh, and uh, and even if even if Abdullah is not a returner, even if it's you know Wangu is going to be the returner, um, I I think that we're probably just not going to see a ton of him. You know, and he didn't he doesn't have a ton of experience, right? Because he's always behind you know an elite running back, right? Is either David Montgomery or or the guy that's probably going to go like the second or third round next year, um, Rice something. Um, it, it was tough for him to see the field. He got injured maybe a couple of times, but. Uh, you think of him as like the scat back guy. I think he only has seven receptions in his career or something like that. Brees Hall. That's it. Thank you. Um, yep. And uh, and so there's just like not a ton available for him right away, I think. And I think it's more kind of just his athletic potential. So I think they're going to wait on him. And that's something I think is probably going to be a common thread for a lot of these mid to late round picks just because the draft pool was so depleted because so many people decided to take the NCAA's offer of maintaining their eligibility through another year. This was the thinnest draft class in a long time. Uh, and so a lot of guys that you would draft in the sixth, seventh round, or even would go undrafted, win in the fourth and fifth round. Uh, and I think that a guy that may or may not make the team, like a fourth or fifth round, or like Zach Davidson, I think is a good example of somebody that might not even make the team and they draft him in the fifth round knowing that, right? I mean, he's a punter, right? And they're playing at a tight end. Um, you know, I think that's just kind of the choice they had to make. And so it wouldn't shock me if a lot of these players did not get a ton of opportunity to play early on. But he's somebody that I would be excited by. I think that, um, you know, not from a fantasy perspective, like in the same way that Mike Boone was not that exciting from a fantasy perspective, he's just exciting as a player. I think it's probably the same thing for him. That makes sense. And you actually hit a couple of the other questions that people had asked about him. So I think I think you're good at uh, foreseeing things they didn't even realize. So you believe that if if Dalvin goes down for any reason, we're going to see that that timeshare between. Oh Lordy, I'm forgetting the backup's name that you just said. Uh, Madison. Madison. Yeah. Yep. I yeah, Madison I think he's going to take a primary role, and then it's probably, you know, and and sometimes I project Amir Abdullah not making the team at all. So you know, I, I'm not 100% certain. I could be wrong. But I think it's probably Madison and Abdullah with a little bit of Wangu. Um, but I think for the most, it's just going to be primarily Madison plus whoever, and that whoever is not going to have a ton of carries or, or touches. That makes sense. I mean, Madison's always looked pretty adequate in reserve. So, yeah. you know, what more can you ask out of a backup? Uh, going into another backup or another rookie here, uh, Emir Smith-Marset. Any any chance that he's a thing this year with the Vikings looking for that third wide receiver? Uh, yeah. Um, so anytime uh, a, a wide receiver in practice at minicamp today or in OTAs last week made a catch, you know, uh, all, all the beat reporters would be like, well, there's your wide receiver <laughs> three. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty fun game. Uh, Smith-Marset has not uh, stood out quite yet which is fine. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, this time, or I shouldn't say this time last year because he didn't have any camp, but uh, two years ago, the guy that stood out the most was Davion Davis. He didn't even make the team. Um, and then after him, it was like Dylan Mitchell, who, you know, he's not on the team. Uh, it doesn't really matter right now, you know, the fact that, you know, Emer Smith-Marset just hasn't done anything yet. But from a, is he going to be a wide receiver three perspective, he does not have an enormous amount of competition. Obviously, the Vikings do like Chad Beebe, but like that's there's a ceiling on that. I mean, the Vikings, <laughs> you know, liked him so much they wouldn't even pay the two million dollar tender to retain him. They needed to sign him at vet minimum, right? Like they were not super enamored with him, right? 
Um, and, you know, BC Johnson has kind of fallen out of favor. I think that, you know, for, uh, was he a sixth round pick? Maybe a seventh? Um, I think that sounds that, about right. Yeah, I think that for the pick that they paid for him, they've already gotten return on investment from him. I think that he's outplayed his pick, so that's great. But in terms of being a wide receiver three, you know, I think that, I wouldn't say he's a favorite or anything like that, just because, you know, BB's probably the favorite, but I think that he's probably the next person up. Uh, and then from there, it's like, um, uh, Blake Prohl and, uh, and Wap Filior, Pylor, I don't really know how to pronounce his name either. Um, Whopper guy, uh, whose yep. name they really comes from the, the Whopper. Um, and, and like somebody else that I'm not like, it's not an enormous amount of competition for wide receiver three. It, it wouldn't shock me if, you know, they brought in like, um, one of the Keenan McCardell's guys, uh, which was D.D. Westbrook still out there. I think there was a rumor that the Vikings were in contact with him. It would not shock me if uh, if they brought him in, uh, given his familiarity with uh, with the wide receivers coach. Um, but yeah, I think as it stands right now, there's a lot of opportunity available for him. If you're in a league with a taxi squad or a really deep bench, I would um, be comfortable investing in Amir Smith-Marset. He's on my taxi squad in my league. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that there's opportunity for him. Uh, from what I saw in college, I actually kind of liked it. It's kind of weird when you watch him and then you realize he was actually Iowa's like leading receiver for like two consecutive years. Like how? Uh, how is that possible? But uh, um, which I, I mind you doesn't sound like an enormous, uh, you know, endorsement of him or anything like that. But um, yeah, I think he's got, you know, some pretty exciting physical tools. I think he's actually probably the better uh, kick returner between him and Wangu. So I think that he's more likely to uh, to you know, earn that job. And, and, and we know that the Vikings have, um, have used special teams as an opportunity to make the team at large eventually. So um, wide receiver three this year, uh, I'd say the odds are not bad, but I wouldn't say they're over 50% either. Um, and uh, in long-term, you know, maybe I, I think that he's maybe a little bit better than a lot of, you know, fourth and fifth round picks, despite what I just said about how depleted the draft class is. Maybe it's because of how deep the wide receiver group is. Like that, that's a little bit of a different conversation. So, for a wide yeah. receiver, I think that he's a little bit better. Yeah. Interesting. So I feel like then that comes ties into that based on the fact that we've hit a bunch of position groups here, and I think for the Vikings, you know, a lot of those starters are figured out. So someone asked favorite Vikings fantasy sleeper, and I guess my add-on is: is there one on the team? Sleeper, Jesus, uh, Adam Thielen. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, I'm curious. What is Thielen ranked? Uh, 36th in Dynasty. Okay, that makes makes a little bit of sense, I guess. 36, um, man. That's is that wide receivers? Yeah, of wide receivers. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, of wide receivers. Um, oh so, wow. Well, it's because he's 30, right? Like, as a Dynasty guy, investing in a 30 year old is tough. Um, I mean, like Julio Jones is like 29th, right? Like, it's age, dude. <laughs> it's tough. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, uh, as, as again, redraft, I'm sure that, that, that Thielen and, and, uh, and Jefferson are actually further close to each other, just in the same way that, uh, that Diggs and Thielen were always like right next to each other in redraft leagues. Um, I can, I can just take a look at that now. Um, yeah, he's 19th in, uh, in redraft. Um, yeah, uh, a sleeper, I, I think that's tough. I guess, um, it, it can't be Irv Smith, right? Because I just said that he's ranked a little bit too high in dynasty. Um, and a lot of people are just talking about him. So that one's tough. Um, I don't like, Con like you just asked me a Conklin. I don't like him as a sleeper. I just like him as a, a player that can contribute to the Vikings. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a sleeper on the team, honestly. Yeah, that one's, yeah, uh, I, I, 
I saw that question. I was thinking like, you know, top running back figured out, top receivers figured out, obviously quarterback. And then the tight end is just kind of, you had already answered that. And it seems very like who could be a sleeper. It has to be very much injury luck, which could happen, but. Yeah, it, it, it might also depend on the construction of your league. In the past, I've been in leagues that just gave you free roster spots to undrafted guys. It didn't count against your bench. And for that, I picked Blake Prohl. I mean, cool, but, you know, that doesn't really matter. Like, I wouldn't... If he counted against my um, my bench, I would not take him. So, like, I don't know. But, like, yeah, I don't know that there's a sleeper on the Vikings. Yeah, I, a sleeper, I think I'm with uh, you right there. Probably, uh, like, outside of the Vikings, um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these um, receivers, like, who's the other LSU receiver um, that wasn't Terrace Marshall or Jamar Chase? Whoever that guy is, I like him. <laughs> like him so much, I forgot his name. I'm blanking as well, so look for those LSU receivers and maybe we'll find them. Yeah! Uh, Dynasty underscore name is, like, on it, dude. Yeah, he's got it. Uh, Racy McMath or something like that. Yeah, there you go. I honestly don't even think I've heard that name before, so apparently I'm not following things close enough. He was undrafted in in a really, in like one of the deepest wide receiver drafts that we've had, but also in a situation where teams probably have not wanted to sign undrafted guys. So I can see why you haven't heard of him, because I'm probably super wrong about him. That's fair. So I'm going to, with Dynasty underscore name, uh, really coming in third with the name there, I'll ask a question of his that that <laughs> is Kellen Mond related, but not at the same time. He, he asked about your article about Kellen Mond. You specifically listed five red flags for draftable QBs, and he was wondering about those actual red flag stats. Are they premium PFF stats, and where did you source them from? Uh, okay, so the... Um... The success rate one is from Sports Info Solutions. Uh, I got that from their uh, the the draft annual book that they released. Obviously, you have to buy the book, and I like hand entered all of the the statistics from the book. Um, so there's that. I actually, yeah, do send a screenshot. That that would be pretty helpful. Um, just so I can uh, make sure I get it. Um, two of them are definitely PFF stats, right? Because one is is PFF grade in a clean pocket, which I think you needed to be above eighty five. And one of them was PFF grade in uh, in a pressure pocket, which you need to be above a 50, which is a fairly low bar to clear, but a lot of, like, drafted quarterbacks don't clear it. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on what the other two are right now because I replaced completion rate with success rate, and that one I did uh, source from Sports Info Solutions. So uh, once that screenshot comes in the chat, I'm going to be a little bit more uh, ready to answer this question and be actually useful. So... Uh, I, I mean, I guess I could just go to my article, but I'm very lazy right now. That's all right. Don't need to multitasking too much. I know I tend to zone out when that happens. Uh, <laughs> so wanted to get in some, into a few questions here that were a little more host-specific. Uh, but before that, we got one, we got a couple Lions questions because I think we might have a few people who are actually thinking about rooting for them. So that might be tough yes. for them. Wow. And... <laughs> It's, it's hard on the soul, but, I, you know, someone's got to do it. And the, the first one was basically, do you think Swift will actually be productive this year or the Lions going to be put in a position where they're just stuck passing the whole time and he's not going to get the chances to show what he can do as a running back? Yeah, that was when you said that question, that was my first response is I don't think that they'll be running the ball that much. So, I mean, which, I mean, then you're relying on like Jared Goff, right? But um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, because the guys that they have, like, so they got Jamal Williams, who's like fine. They got Jamar Jefferson, who for a seventh round pick is like fine. Um, yeah, I that one's that one's tough. Uh, I am not like a huge buyer of DeAndre Swift's talent in general. Like, I'm not. I don't hate him. I think that he's just fine. So, um, if you get like an average running situation, which I mean, the offensive line's not bad or anything like that, but if you get an average running situation, um, and uh. And a, and a team that's not that good, I just, I mean, he's going to be running back one, so he's going to get like 200 carries or whatever, um, but which is fine. So he's he going to get drafted before the fifth round or whatever. But uh, I, I don't think that he's going to be super productive compared to other starting running backs around the league. That makes sense. It's uh, well, ta- talent and opportunity or a situation kind of come together there where it's, I guess even an opportunity made it sound like he, he might not have the full show, which is what I think fantasy players would love to see. Oh, here we go. The screen chat came in. Um, so the on-target rate is also from Sports Info Solutions and adjusted net yards per attempt is from Sports Reference. So uh, four of those are statistics that you have to pay for. I'm very sorry about that, but that's just kind of the way that modern statistical databases work. Uh, and then the fifth one, Sports Reference, is like freemium, right? So if you wanted to do a search, you have to go through their stat head source. Which uh, or their stat head page, which now you do have to pay for, I think. Um, you might get like a free trial for seven days or whatever. Um, but if you just like go to sportsreference.com slash CFB, which I'm sure if you're in the Dynasty community, I didn't even need to tell you that. Um, you can just find like their um, adjusted yards per attempt. And then you have to separate out the sacks, which I did um, by using like teamrankings.com to find sacks. Um, so yeah, because like the NCAA doesn't keep sack stats for whatever reason. So I had to do that manually, but you know, for the most part, yeah. I mean, my testing was on uh, on using TeamRanking.com statistics for sacks, and then uh, the Sports Reference uh, every other passing stat with that. So yeah, so that one is free-ish. You do have to do a little bit of work, and then the other two or the other four are from two different um, pay-for databases. All right, that's good to know. Yeah, I know uh, Pro Football References. We used to do a trivia thing with uh, stats all times. So that's been a, a go-to for a lot of the guys. So we had a few questions here that were more host-specific to you and not just us uh, spamming all of our questions about the Vikings. So sure, the, yeah. number one was, let's see, I had a good, we had one here that wasn't just uh, about the Vikings. Actually, not the mostly, mostly the Vikings. So uh, one was, who are some of your favorite beat writers of Vikings and other teams? And we got to follow up to that after. I think my favorite beat writer for the Vikings was Tom Pelissero. And then, of course, uh, he big timed us by taking better jobs again and again. <laughs> uh, he was a really phenomenal beat writer for the Vikings. Um, so um, that's probably kind of number one uh, of the current beat writers. Um, I mean, I'm just kind of biased. Like my, you know, my biggest friends in the beat community are, are Sam Ekstrom and uh, Matthew Collar, and I think Sam is super underappreciated as a beat writer. He doesn't have, you know, a huge following on Twitter, and I tell him it's because he doesn't tweet well, and I think that's true. But his stories are really good. But um, yeah, he doesn't get a huge following. Um, and then recently, he left Zone Coverage to actually join Collar at Purple Insider, which I regret to inform you is like a Substack, and you have to pay for. Most of the stories, uh, they'll have like one or two stories that are free every week. Um, but yeah, I think that Collard does a really great job of blending um, analytics, film, and traditional reporting um, that I think is a really important way to cover the NFL in the modern media environment. Um, 
like I said, I really respect Courtney Cronin's reporting a lot. Uh, I think she gets a lot of shit because uh, of the way ESPN like makes her write tweets sometimes. Um, because like you, she's got a story and it's like an ESPN hit and auto sends to her Twitter and it automatically links to the ESPN weird. It's such a weird thing. But her stories are really good. Her reporting is really solid. Uh, and so I think that that she does uh, a pretty good job. So those are probably, um, you know, my 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 Vikings beat guys that I think do an excellent job. Um, yeah. And then other than yourself, who is your favorite Seahawks beat writer? Oh, my God. Jesus. That got all the way over here, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that, that is the underscore name or a helpful screenshotter. In, incredible. I can't believe that. Um, this is this joke that I'm a, a Seahawks beat writer or a Seahawks fan or whatever the, the joke is at the time. I'm not, but um, I, I mean, Danny Kelly, back when he was uh, he was with field goals, was really phenomenal. Um, and then he did SB Nation National and then the ringer hired him and he continues to do phenomenal stuff. But he's not like a Seahawks guy anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm going to show for uh, for my. Uh, my colleague at The Athletic, Mike uh, Sean Dugar, I think he does really just amazing work. Um, and, uh, and his reporting is really solid, just really rock solid stuff. He was really good on the, on the Russ um, stuff that occurred this offseason. He wasn't like raising alarm bells, but he was, you know, he was talking about how you know, immediate impression all the stuff was. He's done a really good job of kind of investigating the way the Seahawks have changed over the years. Um, so yeah, I, I think Mike Sean Dugar does a really good job. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, the people in the Seahawks uh, Twitter community that interact with me aren't really beat writers a lot. It's like, like Mina Kimes, for example, it like is ESPN national. She like does a bunch of like, she well, she does like 8 million things a day. There's a story written about how busy she is. Um, but like, she's a great follow, but she's not like a Seahawks beat writer. She just does stuff for ESPN. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but it was a joke question anyway. So I'm not that concerned about answering it. All right. Follow up with another joke question here. Uh, going into the Aaron Rodgers saga, he mentioned basically it's not about the coaches, it's not about the other players. Is it the owners? Is it all those Packer fans? Yeah, all the owners collectively. Yeah, I think it's I think it's anybody who gets that uh, that certificate of ownership. No, I I, I think that uh, obviously Mark Murphy is a pretty big part of that. Um, I think that I I do think that you know Gutekunst plays a role, but I think that Mark Murphy might be kind of the most uh, most antagonizing factor. Um, but I, I think that, and I'm not a Packers guy, so, you know, the Packers guys know a lot more than me on this one. But, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a lot Mark Murphy, a little bit good at Kinston, probably almost zero Matt LaFleur. That makes sense. I, one thing with all the Packers shares, I, I looked it up uh, a while ago at, about how many owners there are in with the murder rate of Wisconsin. I like to say, statistically, every year, the Packers owner murders someone. So... <laughs> There's no way they've avoided it. Uh, and something else I think it was tied into the article on Calamond with Dynasty underscore name again is he was wondering does Connolly's method up or hold up for FCS prospects? Uh, I mean, probably, right? Because the the thesis is essentially that it's it's tough to get better in the NFL, right? So for people who are unfamiliar, um, Connolly's argument is that the statistics that you get in college from quarterbacks, they're not very good at at kind of projecting in general how good a, a quarterback is going to be. 
but they will tell you um, how good he can't be because it is almost impossible for a college quarterback in any of the statistics that you tend to look at uh, of the major statistics. I'm sure if you did splits, it's a little bit different, but of the major passing statistics, it's impossible for them to do better. Um, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because like who are, you know, some of the, some of the, you know, best college quarterbacks that have come into the NFL, you know, players like Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and whatever have had like over 10 yards in attempt. Like they're not going to do that in the NFL, um, at least for the first four years of the career, which is where his study looks at. Um, and that held true for yards per attempt, success rate, completion rate, et cetera. Um, because the point of, of those quarterbacks is that they're better than everybody else in college. That's why they got drafted. Um, and obviously like every position, it is dependent a little bit on your teammates, but if you're better than your competition and your teammates are only as good as the competition, the quarterback is such an overwhelmingly important part of the team that those statistics um, are going to reflect that that you're being dominant, that you're playing in a dominant fashion. And that's, you know, it's pretty hard, right? Like even, you know, the best quarterback in the NFL right now is probably Patrick Mahomes or at least somebody that we've got pretty decent college statistics on where we can take a look at the first four years of their NFL career. They, he just still didn't exceed it, right? Because his, his Texas Tech or whatever, wherever he was, statistics were bananas right and so i would imagine that it holds up for fcs quarterbacks um it's i also oh patrick mahomes is an outlier that's interesting i thought it was only josh allen because when i took a look back at it i mean because patrick Allen's mahomes came to mind yep yeah um yeah simeon um I, I think josh allen is a is a an outlier but Connolly hasn't written that piece since allen um Really? Because I think he exceeded his like yards per attempt, even from a career perspective. I don't know. That's an interesting one to take a look at. Obviously, his 2020 is better than, than his college statistics. But um, yeah, what's interesting about so this is what so I'm, I'm writing a Josh Allen piece right now for Athletic National, just as an aside. What's interesting about Allen is that, yeah, his first two years were really awful, but the improvement from 2018 to 2019 was so dramatic that it is uh, one of the bigger improvements we've seen outside of like Jared Goff and Carson Wentz, one of the biggest improvements we've seen from rookie to second year, and he was still like 23rd or 24th, right? He was still a below average quarterback, which is how bad his rookie season was in terms of statistics. Um, oh man, I must've missed that Connolly article in 21. That's too bad. Um, cause I, I really like his work. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, cause he was at football outsiders and then SB nation and then ESPN. And then I, I, I must've just missed it. Um, but yeah, Allen is is really interesting because his his twenty his twenty eighteen was so bad that his significant improvement in twenty nineteen is kind of covered up, and because quarterbacks don't linearly improve, there's actually no reason to believe that he would actually be this good, um in in twenty twenty. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I I think that so Patrick Mahomes is an outlier. That's interesting because when I I took a look at it, I thought that Mahomes wasn't because his store his, his statistics were just so nuts at texas tech mm. ah, whatever um yeah the fcs stuff i would imagine is largely true but yeah we'll see yeah and what you said about the the quarterbacks really not improving once they hit the league so much uh that's something that i've, I've heard matt waldman talk generally about uh in terms of just uh players once they get to the nfl and this is something that i can relate to i, co- I coach a different sport for college but my it's mostly, and and it sounds like it's the same for the NFL, is looking at what the next game is and installing game plans and things like that and really concentrating on the win. And a lot of, you know, if a player is going to get better, it's on them and what they do outside of practice and outside of what's really structured and engineered by the team. Okay, I sorry, I just clicked on the link and I see Patrick Mahomes. 
Wow, that's nuts. Yeah, Mahomes is pretty good, huh? <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, no worries. He's, uh, I mean, Patrick Mahomes being the outlier, he's, he's always been something. Uh, side note, I mean, as someone who grew up in Minnesota as a Twins fan, when I saw Pat Mahomes, my first instinct was, like, isn't he too old for playing some football? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of why is he even draft eligible? What's going on here? <laughs> yep, and little did I realize in a second, but I remember growing up with him and uh, Troy Hawkins being tried out as the as the closer after Eddie Gordado and just being a good setup man, but not not the closer with with the Twins. Yeah, I mean, Twins fans have been spoiled for a while uh, with Nathan as a closer, and so it's it's easy to kind of forget how how bad it can get. But yeah. Hmm. So we had a few other uh, just specific questions here. Electronics was wondering if you could walk us through just the process of gathering draft boards or what that looks like for the NFL draft and and how you build your consensus big board. Oh, yeah. Um, that, another reason to subscribe to The Athletic. Yeah, so the consensus big board is, uh, is a, a collection of uh, – this year it was 70. Last year I think it was 70 um, big boards from around NFL draft media – uh, where I produce a combined, essentially, a draft ranking um, that does a pretty decent job, you know, when compared to the NFL in terms of um, projecting uh, player outcomes, and then also does a pretty decent job compared to a bunch of individual boards in terms of projecting where players will go in the draft. Uh, and by decent, I'll, you know, I, I, it's actually a little bit better than decent, but I'm Minnesotan, so I always tend to kind of underplay these things. Um, Fair. Yeah, so uh, it's it's actually it it does a really good job, and so the process. Uh, so the first part of that question was the process of acquiring the boards. Yeah, I mean that one was was tough. So I first did it in 2014. I never published it because it wasn't really a complete thing. It was just kind of for my own personal use. Um, and that one I just copy and pasted boards and then did like spelling correction and stuff like that. Uh, and that is still the majority of the process. Um, but now because I'm like you know hashtag in the industry or whatever. Um, I get to like talk to my friends and say, hey, I'm doing the consensus big board this year. They're all very familiar with it. And so they'll send me an Excel spreadsheet instead of me having to like grab it from an image of a PDF or, yeah, less than ideal. See, that's perfect. Um, grab an image from a PDF or try and copy something that just has really um, unideal, uh, if we're going to use that word, formatting for uh, copying into an Excel. And, you know, all my, all my statistics friends who are smarter than me and better at statistics tell me, stop fucking using excel but i never will uh because i'm stubborn and an idiot um and so i have to find ways to you know move a lot of these boards into excel and some of it does really well because they're formatted as tables on the website uh some of it do really poorly because they're pdfs and and that formatting never translates and sometimes they're physical like books like uh dan shaka used to not release his stuff as pdfs um, he used to only have a mail-out guide for our lads, and so I'd have to order it every year. Oh boy! And enter all of the all of the stuff. Yeah, uh, it was it was brutal. And so, uh, like five or six of the draft guides I get still, even now, every year I have to hand enter because they're either images and PDFs or physical copies. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of it is 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 easier now because I can just you know uh, send a text to my friends or DM them and just be like, hey, you're putting together a draft board. Can I can I take a look at it? Just put it in Google Sheets or something, and I'll I'll, I'll copy it over. I still have to do spelling corrections because you know if there's like 500 players on a big board, and uh, and it's across 70, you you're gonna imagine that some people are gonna get things wrong, or you're just gonna spell the same name correctly two or three different ways, like whether or not 
you put this kind of apostrophe there or that kind of apostrophe there, right? Because in Unicode or whatever, there's like four different apostrophes and they don't recognize each other. And so you have to universalize that. Or um, whether or not you put a, an apostrophe at all, like in like Dwayne Eskridge, for example, sometimes they don't put the apostrophe there. It's just capital D, capital W. Um, sometimes they don't include the second hyphen of a name. That was a problem for a while with uh, Trevon Morig. Merig? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But he is a hyphenated name. It's Morig Woodard. Um, but he stopped using it, and so everybody stopped using it. But like some of my draft boards didn't, so I had to like fix that. So I still have to do that. Um, the most common spelling mistakes are not you know, the, the super long hyphenated names like Tuati Mariner or something like that. Um, but actually, because people know that that's hard to spell, so they just look it up. Like, I, I remember when I did Kyle Yuschik, no one got his name wrong because everybody Googled it, right? The ones that are a problem are, are the people that have uh, a fairly common name in North America, but it's just spelled slightly differently. Like if it was like Charlie without an E or something like that. And then I have to correct everybody's spelling. It's just a mess. So that's a lot the of- Devante's. Yeah, exactly. The the 8 million Devontes. Yeah, perfect example. Um, and then in terms of like making sure all of the numbers cohere in a way that I think makes sense, I don't like averaging ranks. I think it does a really poor job of doing a, a, a of expressing the draft community's feelings on a particular prospect um, because uh, a player that you rank number one, you feel very strongly about. And a player that you rank, you know, 250th, you don't feel that strongly about. And you could be convinced pretty easily to move them from 250th to 200th because the difference between those players is very small. Um, we already have a draft uh, solution for this problem, which is the trade value board. Because GMs value the number one pick way more than they value the 58th pick or whatever. And they might draft their 45th ranked player 58th or vice versa and not feel too weird about that, right? Um, and so I just assign... Um, I, I used uh, an average of um, of the Jimmy Johnson board and the approximate value board from Chase Stewart. Uh, and, you know, I normalized it so that they had the same values uh, at the top and at the bottom. And I averaged those out to get a uh, essentially a numerical point value for every ranking. And so I just, I, I take the, I guess, the interquartile mean. So I, I chop off the top quartile of scores and the bottom quartile of scores. Then I take the average of that middle 50%. And that's how many points that player gets from all 70 boards or whatever the chopped off trim to mean is. And then um, that's and then I rank them by those point values. So that's the final board uh, is is the is the that process. So uh, super deep nerd stuff, but I'm on I'm on a dynasty AMA. I can't imagine that that's something that's uninteresting to a lot of people. Uh, we're degenerates here about things. So yeah. I, I got to ask about the interquartile mean there. You can do that in Excel. Yeah, it's not uh, crazy easy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, questions like that are why people are like, Arif, you should stop using Excel because it's a totally fair question. Um, I, I think I looked up, I like Googled trimmed mean in Excel and I didn't like the results. So I like poked around some Excel forums, which exist. Uh, and, uh, and and somebody suggested doing an interquartile mean and they, they provided the formula. I'm going to pull up the... Uh, the thing right now to see what the formula is. Maybe I can even enter it in the AMA. I know that somebody's going to be interested in that because, again, degenerates. Um, but yeah, you can, I guess. Maybe there's a weird hack, and and the hack is like really not good, which is a lot of Excel programming. But yeah, you can. I'll be the one to say. I mean, I don't really use it for data crunching or stats too much, but I'm an Excel lover. Anything I can, I'm going to drop it in Excel. 
So yeah, it's it's that, definitely not like VBA or anything like that. It's it's like the tortured Excel programming language, like equals plus whatever, right? Oh yeah. Well, if if you listen to user solo around here, Tan Ho with Dynasty Process, he'll probably try and convince you to learn how to start coding with R and and turn. Oh, it I get that thing, all but... the time. Yeah. Um, everybody in Alex Twitter uh, makes fun of me for using Excel, and they're right to do so. <laughs> so. Uh, let's see, where is it? Tell me. Holy crap, this sucks. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just take a screenshot. I'm like, this is nuts to me. Um, I'm probably uh, also uh, playing really dirty with this data, I realize. But yeah. Um, okay, screenshot. So, as much as people love to hate in Excel, I think, I think, I think it's more useful in a lot of ways. And people realize one of the one of the best things I ever did for myself in I was in high school. What I didn't know what I wanted to do is I just took a bunch of classes on Microsoft Office products, and since then, just a lot of nice little hacks here and there on how to make make life a little bit easier. Yeah, uh, that's that's really cool. Actually, I like that. Um, it's like, it's also super. Not I don't want this to be a pun, uh, but it is super accessible too, which is which is what's really nice about it is that everyone kind of has had experience with microsoft office sorry i'm like deleting some of the some of the values here because they're either proprietary or they come from like sources that are hashtag sources which is uh i hate doing that i hate like big timing people as a reporter but that's what i'm doing now i guess so yeah there we go hey, you're fine for an ama it's time to big time right <laughs> it's i think i would be violating like a legal agreement if i didn't do this so back <laughs> myself a little bit um, yeah, here's the awful Excel screenshot. Um, All right, looks like it just landed in the chat. So I hope people yeah, will get so, a chance yeah, to check that out. Yeah, there's very clearly some super dirty data work going on in here. Uh, so, yeah, excuse me for being bad at data, but this is what it looks like. Awesome. And I think we had one more uh, question that was in the, in the kind of more host-specific things before throw a couple of random questions at you. And one of them was, what are all the things that you cover in the pre-draft process and how have they evolved over time? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, uh, feel free to simplify it down if it's a little too crazy. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, there's just so much. I mean, the, the amount of draft content that's available is so significant nowadays. And because I do national work for The Athletic, I want to stay up to date on it. And the problem is, of course, you know, the more you invest in in one type of, of draft process, the less you invest in another. And so I would consider myself not a very strong film analyst, but I always want to kind of keep up to date on kind of the ways that people are approaching, you know, uh, draft film processing and stuff like this. Um, but uh, I would say that um, I pay a lot of attention to the Dynasty fantasy community because I think they do a really great job of advancing um you know, an understanding of like how wide receivers, running backs, well, less running backs because they're not really in control of their production, but, you know, wide receivers, running backs, tight ends and quarterbacks, um, you know, kind of are projected to do. And I think that the market share stuff that the dynasty fantasy community has done um, is really excellent. I think breakout age is really excellent. I think that they, um, I've attempted to try and do teammate corrections that I think improve the process, but um, they've been kind of slow. I think um, somebody else that's been, um, that I see listed in the Discord um, as, a, as a member, uh, Amixta, um, has done really excellent work pretty recently on breakout year instead of breakout age. Um, so I do pay attention to that. Um, but because the Dynasty community is focused on, you know, players that produce from offensive skill positions, 
Um, I have to kind of figure out my own way around, um, you know, offensive line statistics, right? You know, defensive line statistics sometimes because there's not a huge IDP fantasy community. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I so I'll, I'll do a lot of my own testing for that uh, and see kind of what works out. And I try to make sure as much of it appears in an article if I'm doing an article on it. Um, so yeah, I that I, I invest a lot of time to trying to figure out what statistics translate from one level to the next. And now that there's so many statistics available, and PFF like this offseason has just expanded um, the amount of statistics that are available. So you get like pass rush win rate at the NFL level. Um, you get rushing from the right side, left side, true pass sets, et cetera, um, from, at the college level. Um, all of that stuff is, is really excellent, but th- it takes up a lot of time to test. So then I also want to make sure that I'm watching, like, for example, Brandon Thorne breakdown offensive line film, you know, which he does uh, on video sometimes. Uh, I talk a lot to the Draft Network guys. Uh, I watch film with them sometimes when, you know, there's not a pandemic uh, and I can just like hang out with them at the Combine or the Senior Bowl and, and see them break down film. And I learn a lot from them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it. And then I used to try and do scouting reports on players that I think the Vikings would be interested in. And I'd write those up and I'd put them out. And then they draft like maybe one of those 15 guys. Um, and so now I don't really write scouting reports. I just kind of make sure that I, that I've got familiarity with like, maybe 80 different players that I think the Vikings are most likely to be interested in. And then I'll do a deeper dive after they draft them and write up those scouting reports, which is how the Kellen Mond piece and the Christian Derrissaw piece um, came out. Although I did less work on Christian Derrissaw than I should have um, because my my process for the Vikings is specifically to take a look at um, what benchmarks they use in terms of the types of players that they they get. And I can winnow down a draft class from about 300 to about 100 uh, and say that these are like the most likely Vikings prospects. And then that 100 constitutes, um, or they, they essentially pick from that 100 about 85% of the time. And so it, it is a pretty good process, I think. But then if they don't do workouts like Christian Derrissaw, I can sometimes miss them. Um, like I, I, I definitely missed Wyatt Davis. I at least included Christian Derrissaw on my list, but I, I missed Wyatt Davis. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll have to play catch up on, on some of those guys. But yeah. That that's a lot of what I do before the draft. I don't know if it effectively answered the question that you were hoping to answer, but that's the answer that I gave. Uh, that's really awesome. That I mean, the fact that you can get a really good idea of who is going to be picked where, and it, give, it gives you the good foundation for when you have to do the write-ups later. That, that makes a lot of sense, and that's that's very interesting that you've been able to uh, kind of include that and, and interpret what they're really looking for. Yeah, I think um, I'm kind of surprised that more writers don't do that for the teams that they cover, honestly, because I think it's fascinating information and it gives you a really good head start on uh, on the players that they might draft. Because, I mean, like, I, you know, a lot of these players that they, they ended up drafting, I ended up becoming pretty familiar with and I could, you know, fire off a take right away because I'd watched enough of that player and I'd read enough of that about that player from people I respect who do film work um, to to talk about them. and so. I'm like surprised, like, you know, a writer, um, you know, some beat writers for teams, you know, might become familiar with like the first round offensive linemen because they're pretty sure the Vikings are going to draft an offensive lineman. But, you know, be, you know, be kind of not surprised, but like kind of have no take on like Wyatt Davis, right? Or or whoever they draft. Like I, I had a take ready to go when the Vikings drafted Drew Samia because he was clearly an obvious candidate to be picked by the Vikings given his profile. And so I watched a little bit of his film. I, you know, checked out his statistics and I was able to talk about him. Uh, whereas a lot of these writers won't have a take until the very next day because, you know, they have to go and check in with their sources and, 
sometimes the sources have like different motivations for why they're you know sharing what information they're sharing, and it can get kind of muddled. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that trying to figure out who's the most likely player your team is going to draft is a really important part of doing pre-draft work for a team you're covering, and a lot of people don't do it. Yeah. Well, I guess with the Vikings, there's always probably the cheat code that if it's first-round pick, you can just say 50-50, it's going to be a cornerback. Yeah, it might be not. a corner. Yeah, I, I did work on first-round quarterbacks this year just because I was like, yeah, why not? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that was always the joke in all my chats and everything. It's like, well, no matter what what's going to happen, we could probably use another corner, which is actually probably somewhat true this year. Yeah, I mean, yeah, after Jeff Gladney got arrested, it was just like, yeah, they might. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, one question I hadn't gone through, partially because I have no idea what the question actually is, but from Dynasty underscore name is your favorite drill tweet. Uh, who's yelling at me to log off? I will never log off. That's got to be my favorite drill tweet. There's so many good ones. Corn Cobb is an amazing tweet. It's so useful. But it might be the who's yelling at me to log off. I will never log off. Awesome. I'm, I'm guessing he's more dialed in on things than I'm. I'm not on Twitter, so. I'll, oh, yeah, then you were not going to get right that question me. at all. Yeah, that's an extremely, not just extremely online, but extremely Twitter online thing. He he might okay. be the best tweeter in existence, though, so, you know. Well, when the day comes when I actually get that Twitter, I, I said I was going to for hosting this, and then I just didn't. Ah, don't do it. It's not uh, worth it. Twitter's not worth it. Twitter's awful. All right. I, you see, stuff like that just keeps me going. <laughs> It, it, it keeps me strong. <laughs> I'm gonna if I ever do, I'm gonna follow uh, Solar's advice of just heavily curating and not following friends back just because they're friends, or you know, just looking at people's stuff and basis creating my own super echo chamber and looking at the only only the things that I want to see. Well, if you so if you follow friends because they followed you or whatever, you're gonna find out some really screwed up stuff about your friends. Like they'll they'll like a super racist tweet and you'll be like, Well, I didn't I didn't know that about you. All right. Well now I know. <laughs> like I wanna say luckily I think I got most of those people from high school out, but you know, you never know. <laughs> yeah, any anything will just, you know, take you out, man. Twitter, Twitter you gotta keep your head on a swivel. So I, I will at least say I, I did check out your Twitter ahead of, ahead of time just to be able to have something that re resembles intelligent conversation here and there. And I saw that you had some pictures from uh, traveling to Iceland recently. Uh, yeah, man. Iceland rules. <laughs> I'm, I am really jealous. Uh, when I got my second dose of the vaccine scheduled, I my wife and I booked a trip to Iceland for uh, mid-May. And because they were accepting people at the time. Right. And then a couple of weeks later, they decided, I think they changed the thing and they canceled all the flights to Iceland for oh, uh, no. people. So I, I think I hit like this really bad window, but it looks like you were able to do it. We did travel to Iceland before, but okay. uh, any any highlights that you want to share? Because I, I only got kind of the, the southwestern area by Reykjavik when I first traveled there. I, that, that's where I went to. Uh, we were thinking about doing the ring road around uh, around Iceland. Is there just so much to do around Reykjavik? Like, you know, no matter kind of what you're interested, if you're like a super outdoorsy guy, tons of stuff to do, amazing waterfalls to see, mountains to climb. Uh, there's an active volcano in Iceland right now, so of course we went out to see that, which required a fair amount more hiking than my body was prepared for. Um, but uh, active volcano, right? You got to do it. So mm -hmm. um, there's so much to do, and the landscape changes so dramatically, you know, three miles away from wherever you were previously, right? So you can go from a volcano 
to a glacier to an entirely black beach, which uh, which is beautiful. I think they filmed some Game of Thrones uh, scenes for season six and seven there. Um, I recognized it because they modeled uh, stuff off of uh, Dragon Age Inquisition there. Um, but uh, yeah, a different kind of nerd would love the Game of Thrones stuff, right? Like, it's just what kind of nerd are you? Well, I still got something for you. Um, but yeah, they've got like 300 different kinds of moss, which I thought when I say that out loud, and actually when I heard it, I was like, that's not that interesting. Uh, but then you like drive out. We rented a car for a couple of days, but also just even on the on the flight from uh, or on the on the drive from the airport to the hotel, um, the landscape looks a ton like Death Stranding, because the lava fields, the first thing that can grow on them is moss, and it I don't know, it just looks insane. It looks like you're on an alien planet, but not like a barren one like the moon, or which I guess is not a planet, but like or like Mars, right? Um, <clears throat> It's it's a nuts place, um, and so yeah, you can you can go to these beautiful waterfalls. You can go to these lush. Uh, they even they've even planted trees now. They like back when the Vikings landed in Iceland, they cut down all the trees, which is why it's so insanely windy there. But there's a there's a there are places with tons of trees now, and there's beautiful landscapes. Um, so yeah, anything. We went whale watching. Didn't see any whales, but the 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 trip itself. We were like in the five percent of people that didn't see whales uh, with that company within that. Oh no. Yeah, it was yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, most tour companies, including ours, refunded us uh, if there were no whales. So that was nice. But the trip, at, the boating trip itself was nice. I mean, the harbor, um, the islands that pop up, you know, it was all beautiful. We got to see all these different kinds of, like, birds and stuff. Um, my girlfriend's a biologist, so she's super into a bunch of this stuff. But I'm not going to say it's uninteresting to me because it was super interesting to me as well. Um, yeah, the Iceland rules, uh, their food, I mean, first of all, everything there is expensive. Um, yeah, once, once I think it's like the second or third most expensive city in the world right now because everything has to be imported. Uh, and, uh, and you know, we are prepared to pay more for stuff because, you know, we've traveled before. We've traveled to London and Paris, and we're like, yeah, I mean, cities are expensive, so we'll have to pay more. Like, you know, not everything is like Minneapolis in terms of cost of living expenses, plus we won't be cooking for ourselves. So we're, we expected, you know, to to pay a little bit more for stuff. But th this stuff was, like, outrageously expensive. But once you get past that, the food was really good. <laughs> um, so... Uh, they have like four Michelin star restaurants, like an island, a population of 300,000 people. I don't know how you get four Michelin star restaurants, but wow. Yeah, nuts. I don't think Minneapolis has any. They've got a couple of James Beard Award winners, but they don't have any Michelin stars. Um, in Minneapolis, the greater area is like four million. So yeah, I don't know how Iceland does it, but that food was amazing. I will share my one trip. My one traveler said that I did in Iceland as well is if, if you can swing it, stop by a a grocery store and just pick up some general stuff to eat, throw in a backpack. I always grab a oh, loaf of bread, yeah. a jar of peanut butter, and that's my lunches because it's, it's, in, yeah, I, it's... in Iceland specifically, I think, you know, you just get like takeout from a random roadside thing and you're looking at 25 to $30 per person. Yeah, no, yeah. And that, that's, yeah, that's what we did for the second half of the trip. And, and you have to go to the right grocery store too, which is nuts. Like there's a, there's, they have a convenience store called 1011, which sounded like a, like when they told me, I thought they were just making fun of me and 7-Elevens. But no, there's an actual place called 1011. And uh, that place, like, we we got, like, just a, a couple of snacks, and it ended up running us $80. And we were like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yep. Um, and so there's, like, a – so the right grocery store to go is called Bonus, and it's just a cheaper grocery yes. store. Yes. But, like, yeah, half – like, half of – the second half of the trip, that's – we grabbed uh, peanut butter and, like, so a loaf of bread and just, like, you know, backpacked with that. Like, nuts how expensive that stuff is. 
So I got to ask, did you eat either puffin or fermented shark while you were there? I wanted to eat fermented shark. Uh, we could not fit that in because you have to like do like some tour stuff to get to the fermented shark. Could not fit that in at the time. Um, so we, we are planning on going back. And so I'm going to eat the fermented shark and then throw up because it's like famously bad. Did not eat puffin. Um, we kind of, so like uh, when we went whale watching, the tour guide was like really impressing upon us how important it was to avoid places that served whale. Which, like, yeah, the guy clearly has a bias, right? But, like, yeah, he was making a pretty good argument. So we just decided to listen to it because we were not going to be lacking for food. But those places are also the places that serve, like, puffin and stuff. So did not get to eat any puffin. That's fair. I did see in a restaurant uh, someone, a couple uh, young German guys at the table next to me ordered that fermented shark. And they got it. They were, you could tell they were hyped up to eat it. They each took one bite, and then they just pushed the plate off to the side. So. Anthony Bourdain said it was like the worst thing he's ever had in his life. And like, yeah, given and and like Andrew Zimmern said like the same thing. And Andrew Zimmern's job is exclusively to eat gross stuff. So like, yeah, both of them, given their range of food experiences globally, the fact that they both uh, identified, I think it's called Hey Carl or Ha Carl um, as like the worst thing that they've had. Like, I think Andrew Zimmern threw up and he has a, really great tolerance for not throwing up for other people's food so like it must be nuts but that just makes me want to try it right it's just like I know, right <laughs> i can go i've had lutefisk man how bad could it be <laughs> I've, you've had the fermented sea things before you you know what it's like yeah i'm i'm ready to go all in man but uh we, we couldn't I, we couldn't fit it in in this trip uh, probably for the better probably uh, Bryce asked a question. I'm not sure if this is in reference to something or what the case might be, but he asked, do you enjoy, enjoy Italian beefs or what? Do I enjoy Italian beefs like the sandwich? I think so. I, I didn't know if he had been, you know, creeping for a while and knew something about you that I didn't. I, 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 I love them. Um, I, I think I might have I, I might have gone on a rant on my podcast actually about Chicago food because I think it's like the worst thing that that people recognize um, the Chicago-style pizza as Chicago food because Chicago has so much good food, and Chicago-style pizza is, like, whatever. Uh, and it's not even the type of pizza that they have a bunch of, right? Because, like, a lot of them just have tavern-style pizza, which is also not specific to Chicago, but there's, like, a famously Chicago twist to a lot of that pizza. And that's good, too. Uh, and so I went on a rant. Like, Italian beef is, is really good, and I like Chicago dogs. And it's just so weird that, like... When people think of Chicago food, a lot of times they'll think of like this casserole with pizza ingredients in it, um, which can be good. But it's like compared to some of the other like regionally specific food is is kind of a waste. I like it. I like Italian beef. Well, it seems like Bryce may, may have picked up on something there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he could. Is he listening to like random episodes of my podcast? I don't know, man. But yeah, I do like Italian beef. It's really good. He is a Packer fan, so. I don't know what he's doing with his life. So. <laughs> he's already making a couple of mistakes. Might as well listen yeah. to my podcast. Well, if he's going over to the Vikings podcast, you know, maybe he's just got too much time, but maybe <laughs> he's starting to see the light there. Yeah. So uh, I've got one final question since we're going probably good on time here. It's one, one thing we always like to ask. Uh, a little tongue in cheek here. Feel free to ask it, answer it if you want to, or make up a story or whatever. But uh, we always like to ask uh, have you ever pooped your pants? Like as an adult? Like as a kid, or you, yes. Or if you got a good one as a kid. 
Well, I mean, like, uh, probably not as a kid as I remember. Uh, when I've been sick as an adult, if that counts, yeah. That you know, you're, counts. you're ready for one thing, and then something else happens, and you've got an emergency, but never when I was healthy. Gastrointestinal distress, sure. I'll admit to it. That's, that's, that's pretty easy. That's not even embarrassing, right? It's not even my fault. No shame in that. Uh, there was a game I used to play on the phone called Plague Inc., and one of the things was if you if you triggered the sneezing from the disease it created and diarrhea created what they called the oops combo. Oh, that's great. Actually, uh, one of the YouTubers I just started watching has like a bunch of Let's Plays of Plague Inc. up. I, I was planning on watching that, but I mostly started watching them because they did a bunch of Frostpunk Let's Plays. It's one of my favorite uh, survival games ever. So yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll watch some Plague Inc. Maybe we'll get some uh, oops effect stuff going on. It's probably the the mobile game that throughout college I put the most time into. It's just, <laughs> you get sucked into it really easily. That's fair. All right. Well, that's about it for the questions that we've got here. So I guess the final one is, can you give us a reminder on where we can find all your stuff? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, if after all of this, you still want to, like, get my takes. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you have Twitter. Uh, Adarifasan NFL, A-R-I-F-H-S-A-N NFL. Um, all my written work is now at The Athletic, theathletic.com slash author slash reef dash Hassan, although you're probably familiar with how the athletic works. Um, but if you subscribe via one of my stories, I get credit for it, which I would appreciate. Um, so there's that. Um, uh, I also do the uh, the Norse Code podcast, um, which you can find where podcasts are aggregated. Uh, I used to do some other podcasts. They've since shut down. Um, also, like, very occasionally, like, if you're into super bad politics, I also have a politics podcast that, like, some updates like once a year. It's not a very common podcast, but that's over at the Wide Left podcast, um, which I link to in my my Twitter handle. Um, so, yeah, that's where you can find my stuff. Um, not not much more. I used to have like a. I always feel awkward at the end of that because I used to have uh, like eight million places that I wrote at and three different podcasts, and so I feel like there's always got to be more. But no, Twitter, Arifasan NFL, written work at the Athletic. Awesome. Well, hopefully everyone will go in get a chance to check you out subscribe to your twitter and if they're going to subscribe to the athletic they better go through your stuff otherwise they're letting down the whole movement yeah it's tough yeah <laughs> awesome well thank you very much it's great to great to have you on great to talk to another minnesotan vikings fan even if i've moved out of the area but uh it's uh it was a really wonderful conversation I really appreciate you having on yeah thanks for having me and thanks dynasty for uh dynasty name for uh hyping me up and linking my pieces that's great yeah, uh, I'm going to have to give him the award for questions of the day and all the effort that he's put in. So that was awesome. Yeah, it was dope. Yeah, and, and thanks to you for hosting this, and thanks for Bryce for contacting me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah.